Good morning. Good morning to First Baptist Church, Watauga. Uh, my name is Palmer, and uh, I am so thrilled uh, to be preaching to you this morning. Uh, I just want to say thank you, Brother Dennis, for giving me this opportunity. I am so richly blessed uh, for this opportunity to be licensed and to preach to you. Um, but kind of like what Dennis said, I'm the student ministries intern here, and uh, so I get to help out Nathan and assist him in all that he does uh, in our wonderful youth ministry. Um, but if you're new here, or if this is your first time coming, or uh, you don't know where we're at in the series, we're actually in a series called Resurrected. And uh, what we are studying is we are studying how people responded to the resurrection of Christ. Like, what did people actually do? So when Jesus died, he rose again, and he ascended to the Father, what did they do? Um, it's a great question to ask because I think it guides us as our Christian life and our Christian walk. So what did the disciples do? That is the theme and the message uh, of our resurrected series that we're in. For instance, last week, Dennis preached on prayer. So we see that um, when Pentecost happened, before Pentecost happened, they submitted themselves to prayer. It was one of the very first things they did. But this week, we're going to look at a different aspect of what also they did. They submitted themselves to discipleship. They engaged in the practice of discipleship. Our launch pad verse for this series is Acts chapter 2, verses 41 through 42. This is not our main text for today, but it is our launch pad verse for the series. It reads, so those who accepted his message, his message would be Peter's message because Peter just got done delivering the sermon. So those who accepted his message were baptized and that day about 3,000 people were added to them. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Like I said last week, Dennis preached on prayer. Um, and like I said, this is not our main text this morning, but it's clear to know that they submitted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They knew that to effectively share the gospel and to fulfill the great commission, they would, they would need to know how to be trained to do so. They needed to know what they are to teach and what they are to share with each other. They needed discipleship. So this is the theme of this morning. What is biblical discipleship? What does that look like? So what I think would be a great learning point uh, this morning would to be to focus on Paul and Timothy. Paul discipled Timothy, and if we're not going to learn from Jesus himself, I think a great person to learn discipleship from would be the Apostle Paul. So Paul sent two letters to Timothy, to Timothy, and we get to see and to kind of peek behind the veil of how Paul addressed Timothy and what was expected of his disciples. So our focus text today and the text we will primarily be in is going to be in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 10 through 7. Scholars believe that Paul wrote this letter to Timothy while he was in Rome. Uh, Paul, we all know, was executed in Rome. Paul uh, died in Rome. So it is probably safe to say that Timothy, this, this letter written to Timothy was probably within probably the last handful of years of, of Paul's life. An important note I think would make a good distinction is uh, we refer to Timothy as young Timothy. Uh, but in reality, Timothy was probably like in his early 30s. 
Um, I know in American culture, when we think of a young man, we start to think of like 18 years old. When we say that young man, uh, but usually in, in American culture, uh, when we say someone's in their 30s, they're just a grown man. Uh, but I think it's safe to say here in ancient times, a person was considered a young man until they were 40. So just some context there, Timothy was most likely in his early 30s. So let's turn to our main text today in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 10 through 17. We're going to read the whole thing, and we'll go from there. Paul says, But you have followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, and endurance, along with the persecutions and sufferings that came to me in Antioch, Iconium, Lystra. What persecutions I have endured, and yet the Lord rescued me from them all. In fact, all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Evil people and impostors will become worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed. You know those who taught you, and you know that from infancy you have known the sacred scriptures, which are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. Paul here is instructing Timothy. Paul here is discipling Timothy through this letter. But before we continue in discipleship, I think it's necessary to lay out some basic definitions before we continue. Well, what is a disciple? What is a disciple, right? I think sometimes, especially in church culture, we can say words just so uh, flippantly and, and so casually. Sometimes we forget what they actually mean. Well, lucky for us, Paul answers that within the very first handful of words in verse 10. But you, Timothy, have followed my teaching Conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, and endurance. So maybe some of y'all's translations translate that to putting the word before every single one of those. My teaching, my conduct, my purpose, my faith, my patience, my love, and my endurance. Well, Paul says bluntly, you have followed my teaching. Now, unfortunately, I think sometimes that's where we stop in our definition of discipleship. Sure, one could argue that at the very core essence of discipleship, it is just following one's teaching. But I would like to argue that biblical discipleship is much more than that and much more fleshed out. Because look, Paul does not stop at teaching. He continues. He says, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, and endurance. Timothy has not only adopted Paul's teaching, but he has adopted the full scope of the ministry of Paul. He has learned how to carry himself properly. He has learned how to carry out the purpose and the vision of a minister who is called to plant churches. He has learned how to keep the faith. He has learned much patience with the struggle that first century Christians faced. He has learned to love like Christ has loved us, and he has learned to run the race with endurance that Christ has called us to run. 
I think it would be correct to say that evangelism is more about addition and discipleship is more about duplication. Well, what do I mean by that? Discipleship and evangelism are so closely tied, it can sometimes be hard to distinguish them, right? Like, what's the difference between discipleship and evangelism? Like, when you really start to think about it, they're very similar. But I believe evangelism is about addition, adding people to the kingdom of God, having God called them out of darkness into his marvelous light, right? We read that. What happened? 3,000 were added to their numbers, and then they submitted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So we see it's about addition to the kingdom. Well, discipleship is about duplication. It is what we primarily do after someone is converted, born again, profess Christ as their Savior, where sanctified believers start to duplicate their fruit of the Spirit in others' lives. Let me give you an example. Here's what I mean by this. If Dennis were to disciple me or Nathan were to disciple me, I know that they are not trying to make me like them. God has made me uniquely and them as well. I will never be like them. But if Dennis were to disciple me on forgiveness and I were sanctified by that discipleship, I didn't become more like Dennis. I became more like Christ. You see, the fruit of the Spirit often can take many seasons to grow. And what feels like more often than not, we can be in a drought where we see no real fruit. So this is why it is so important when someone is producing fruit that we get to share it with others by discipleship, that we get to pour into each other. You see, we can't give what we don't have. And you can't take somebody somewhere where you haven't been. This is why it's very important for a couple, maybe who's married and married a handful of years, like my wife and I, uh, to be discipled by people who have been married for a long time and have yielded great fruit. Here's another example at the marriage retreat. Some of us were at that as mentors and, and mentees. I guess that's the word for it. Katie and I got to sit under Pete and Sarah Franz, and it was such a blessing. It was such a blessing to sit under their teaching and discipleship, and they just got to share such great wisdom for marriage. And Katie and I are just thinking, man, this is just such a wonderful thing, and we were so richly blessed by it, and our marriage has been stronger for it. But guess what? Katie and I didn't become more like Pete and Sarah. We became more like Christ as we learned to love each other more and more with sacrificial love. They were able to take the fruit that God has produced in their life and to deposit into ours. So now that we've laid out the groundwork of what discipleship is, I think it needs to go into, we need to talk about the cost of discipleship. And we really need some perspective on this. We are so stinking blessed here in the United States. We are. We are. I know our country has our problems, y'all, but we are so richly blessed that we get to meet in this room right here, and none of us walked in this building this morning going, I wonder if we're going to get arrested for meeting this morning. No one thought that. But there are millions of our brothers and sisters right now 
risking their lives to sing songs of praise, to read God's word. Paul is writing with intensity here because I believe Paul is kind of getting the hint that he's coming to the end of his life. He says in verses 11 through 12, he says, along with the persecutions and sufferings that came to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Elystra, what persecutions I endured, and yet the Lord rescued me from them all. In fact, all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. If there's anyone who can testify about the persecution Christians face, it's Paul the Apostle. Jesus tells us that we will have many trials and tribulations in this world, but to take heart because he's overcome the world. Amen. Paul listed Lystra here. And for a reminder, Lystra is where Paul was stoned and left out of the city to die because they thought him to be dead. Paul was so beaten to a pulp, the disciples that came to rescue him probably did not think they were coming on a rescue mission, but instead to probably give him a proper burial. It probably wasn't until they started tending to his body they realized the man was breathing. When I think of persecution... I am richly reminded of the faithful ministers of the gospel named Richard and his wife, Sabina Wormbrand. On August 23rd, 1994, one million Russian soldiers invaded Romania. The communists took power. Atheism became the official belief of the state, and to believe and proclaim Christ was enough for arrest and torture. Spies filled the streets and churches had a choice. They could either be enlisted to the services of the Soviets or go to jail. The communists at that time skillfully seduced the church and the church leaders were easily deceived. They collected a, cong- they collected a congress of ministers, pastors, rabbis, and other spiritual leaders for this congressional hearing and Joseph Stalin was the honorary patron. The congress was broadcasted all across the nation The idea was to persuade the public to the communistic regime. Richard and Sabina watched the church leaders, one after the other, assure the communistic party of the loyalty of the church. They defamed Christ by selling him out for the safety and security. They even bought into the lies that the clergy would have higher pay under their rule. In the midst of all of this, Sabina turns to Richard and says, this is madness. They are spitting in the face of Christ. Will you not wipe the spit off his face? Richard responds, you do know that if I speak now, you will have no husband. Sabina responds with tears in her eyes and she says, I don't need a coward for a husband. Richard stands up and asks if he can speak. The whole room goes quiet. He quickly makes his way to the stage and assumes the microphone. They let him speak under the assumption he would fold like the others. Instead, he thundered the gospel all across Romania, proclaiming to the masses that we do not serve man, but we live to glorify God and worship the Savior who died on the cross for our sins. His mic was quickly taken from him, and after him and Sabina left the hearing, and they were shortly abducted after. 
Richard Wormbrand spent 14 years in prison, three of which were solitary confinement, 12 feet underground. Sabina spent three years in a slave labor camp. Do you see what Paul is stressing to Timothy? Are we unashamed of the gospel, like Paul says in Romans 1.16? Are we going to fold under persecution? We need discipleship. We have to put courage into others that we may be unashamed as well. Would you weigh the cost? I can't tell you how many times I've had friends bail on the gospel, leave the faith. And I think primarily one of the reasons is when they got up to pray that prayer and their emotions were hot, it was a great worship service, they didn't weigh the cost. Would you weigh the cost this morning of being a disciple of Jesus Christ? Paul continues in verses 13 through 15. He says, evil people and imposters will become worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed. You know those who taught you, and you know that from infancy you have known the sacred scriptures, which are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Paul is stressing here to Timothy to keep the faith, keep pursuing Christ in truth. And Paul talks about evil people and imposters deceiving and and being deceived. But what does he list as Timothy's defense? Like, why does Timothy stand a defense? Like, why did he not fold when clearly other people have? Why did Timothy not bail? Hey, it's getting too hard. Thanks a lot, Paul. I'm out. I'm going to go back to my regular life. Paul addresses this clearly because what? He has known the sacred scriptures. I think it goes so far to say that being knowing the sacred scriptures goes far beyond human intellect. It has to penetrate your heart. It can't be head knowledge It has to penetrate our heart. He has known the sacred scriptures. If we are not taught the scriptures, we have a very real possibility of being deceived and deceiving others. Acts chapter 8 is a reminder of this. We all probably know the story. It's of Philip and the eunuch. What happens? Philip comes across a eunuch, and the eunuch is reading Isaiah chapter 53. Philip asks the eunuch, he says, if he knows what he's reading. Hey, do you know what you're reading? You know what the eunuch says to Philip? He says, how can I unless someone guides me? You see, we need others to guide us to the cross. We need others to guide us into deeper waters when it comes to holiness in the scriptures. We need each other. Paul goes on to say in verses 16 through 17, he says, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. 
You see, this is, this is the text where we, act, we actually get many doctrines that we affirm here at this church. This is where we get Scripture is inerrant. It's without error. This is where we get that Scripture is sufficient. And this is where we get to stand in church history where we get the claim sola scriptura, which is Latin for Scripture alone. And what that means is Scripture alone has the final authority in our lives. Now, here's the thing. If we give an inch in any of these categories, inerrancy, sufficiency, and authority, Satan will come in and he will wreck shop in your life, in our church, and in your relationships. It's just the truth. I've heard it said about the American church that we play games, but guess what? Satan plays for keeps. We can't budge an inch on these doctrines. Scripture is inerrant. Scripture is sufficient. And it is all authoritative. Well, where do we see this? Let's flip a chapter. Paul says uh, in chapter 4 to Timothy, not much has changed. We read, for the time will come when people will not tolerate sound doctrine, but according to their own desires will multiply teachers for themselves because they have an itch to hear what they want to hear. They will turn away from hearing the truth and will turn aside to myths. But as for you, Timothy, exercise self-control in everything. Endure hardship. Do the work of the evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Sounds a lot like today, huh? The prosperity, health, and wealth gospel has gripped our country. And we see it a lot in Texas. It is a cesspool of prosperity, health, and wealth teaching here in the South, in the Bible Belt. Can I just affirm something real quick? I just want to reaffirm that Jesus did not come to earth to make you rich or so that you would never experience hardship or so that you would get the great promotion at work or have a nice boat or have a nice house or have popularity or influence. Jesus came to die to pay for your sins and to reconcile you back to himself. And God forgive us when we look at that bloodied up cross of Christ and say, thank you, God, for that, but I want more. You can't have more than Christ because when you have him, you have it all. It is not about the gifts, but it is about the giver. Oh, to be counted righteous by his work on the cross, credited to me. Is there any other gift that can surpass that? to know God and to be deeply loved by him, just to have Christ and to have Christ alone, is that enough for us this morning? Man, I pray it is. I pray it is. I pray that it is sufficient that we lay at the cross and we say, thank you, Jesus, because if I have him, I have it all. I have resolved to preach Christ crucified, and if I can know Jesus He is what I boast in. When we wake up in the morning, we have to pick up our cross once more to follow him. It is a decision we make every single day. But I want you to hear this. You don't have to do it alone. Yes, we have the Holy Spirit, but God has intended and designed the church to help us 
carry our cross with us. We're, we're doing a series in, on Wednesday night on biblical friendship and what that looks like. And Nathan taught on Sunday that we are called to share in our sufferings together. That is the call of the church. Know the word, study the word, and find somebody to teach you the word. Or get into a community that teaches you the word. A plea I have for you today is that maybe you're not ready to disciple someone. But you know what? Maybe your first step is to get here at 9.30 and to sit in a growth group. You don't have to talk or contribute if you're nervous. But just to be present and absorb the word as we teach each other. Charles Spurgeon says this. He says, a Bible that's fallen apart usually belongs to someone who isn't. I love that. We need the word. We need each other. And we need discipleship. I want to tell a funny story. And then uh, I think it's funny. Um, and then we'll close. <laughs> Last week in our growth group, uh, Cole Stovall, before we jumped into the word, the deep, rich truth and theological stuff, Cole was talking about this mac and cheese he likes to make. And man, I tell you what, he was talking about how he buys those big old blocks of cheese and grates it himself and makes that little concoction of all the noodles. I don't know what goes all into it, but I can tell you one thing. I was drooling. <laughs> and you know what I looked at that man? I looked him straight in the eyes. I looked that brother straight in the face. And I said, when are you going to bring that up here, man? Stop holding out on us. So here's my story and the point of that. Gifts are best used when they're shared. If you're not plugged into a growth group or discipleship or serving at this church, this is not to shame you. It is not to make you feel bad. But instead, I want to reaffirm you that if the Holy Spirit has indwelt you, you have giftings that would be of tremendous value to this church. God has uniquely made you and has given a purpose for your life and has given you a special set of gifts that he has given no one else. And each bring their own thing to the table. For instance, Matthew, Jonathan, Corey, they all lead us in worship. But you know what? All of them are different. And they bring their own set of talents and unique God-given gifts to the table when they lead us in praise and worship. And we are richly blessed because of it. And I love when I get to see the diversified worship team up here. I love it. You see, this is what I want to encourage us in, is to get plugged into discipleship. And that really can be as easy as just showing up at 9.30 and sitting in a growth group class. I want to close with this, and maybe you don't know if you are a disciple, right? We've heard of what a disciple is and um, the cost of discipleship. But what is, how do you become a disciple? Can I tell you it's really easy? 
That it is by faith alone in Jesus Christ that you can be saved. The Bible tells us in Romans 10 that anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved, period. It also tells us that faith comes by hearing. And so I want to share the gospel with you. Because I want people who don't know Christ to come to know Christ. We are all sinners. It is by nature that we are sinners. It is our fallen nature. In Adam, we all fell and died. We are dead in our sin and trespasses. Well, it seems like quite a conundrum. How do you get out of that? (laughs) Not much we can do. We are helpless. We are in need of a supernatural resurrection. And here's the thing. Sin has to be punished. It has to be paid for. So here's the thing. Either you're going to pay for it, or Christ is going to pay for it. And the good news, I'm here to tell you this morning, is that Christ has paid for it. And he did it 2,000 years ago on a cross. The spotless lamb lived a perfect life of righteousness, did not sin. The spotless lamb upon the tree bled and died for you. And if you would believe today, the perfect work of Christ would be credited to you. See, you don't have a righteousness of your own. My righteousness on my own described as a filthy rab before God. Can you imagine standing before the throne room of God and God says, why should I let you into heaven, Palmer? And I go, because of this. (laughs) And I pull out a dirty rag. He'd go, what? (laughs) Like, it just sounds silly. It's just, it sounds absurd. But can I tell you something? When you stand before the throne, and hypothetically, right, I'm not saying this is going to happen. Why should I let you into heaven? Because he died for me because I'm covered in his blood. Can I tell you something? You can be showered in his blood, but still stainless. That's the good news and the hope we have of the gospel is that Jesus died on our behalf so that we might live. In Adam, all died, but in the second Adam, all might live. And that's the good news that we share this morning. You've been listening to a Sunday morning message from our services here at First Baptist Watauga. Our family's mission is to exalt the Savior, equip the saints, and evangelize the lost. If you want to know more about First Baptist Watauga or need to reach out to us for prayer, go to fbcwatauga.org and let us know. In all things, to God be the glory, honor, and